Hi guys, welcome back to Elsa Media's Emergency Room Podcast. This week, we're reading chapters 12 and 13 of the book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, by Dr. Osterholm and Mark Allshaker. My name is Elsa, and here I have my co-host, Ria. Hi guys, alright, let's get started. So chapter 12 was titled, Ebola Out of Africa. The quote that it starts off with is, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. And this was a quote from William Gibson. Um, I guess what it's trying to say is just how we continue to have these infectious disease problems. And we sometimes don't pay attention to them just because maybe they're small or maybe they're not affecting too many people. Or maybe they're not affecting, this is my personal take, maybe they're not affecting populations that we consider, I don't know if important is the right word, but like, I guess if something were to happen in the US, everyone immediately freaks out like that. But meanwhile, um, you know, Ebola, for example, happening in Africa, I feel like it's because it's a underdeveloped third world country, I feel like people don't pay as much attention to them suffering. So Dr. Osterholm starts the chapter off with talking about, I guess, um, what Ebola is. So, you know, it's a virus. It's specifically a phylovirus because the actual structure or morphology of the virus is a loop-like filament. And then the name comes from the Ebola River, which is near the village where the Congo breakout occurred. And then from 1976 to 2013, there were actually 24 documented outbreaks in Africa, the largest occurring in 2000. And one of the larger cases in terms of numbers and people dying uh, occurred in Gulu, Uganda, which had 425 cases and killed 224 people. Ebola seemed to have come from the equatorial forests of Central Africa. And while scientists aren't really sure of the exact animal reservoir, it's most probable that it came from fruit bats What I thought was interesting about this was that uh, Dr. Osterholm says how healthcare facilities were case magnifiers because they didn't have the proper infection practices or protective gear. And I feel like we see that today during COVID-19 because a lot of hospital staff have been infected because of the lack in PPE. Right. Yeah, that is a good correlation to make. And I can't imagine, um, you know, again, going back to that idea of it being a country people tend to care less about. I wonder if they even got the facilities fast enough to help with the outbreak versus, you know, I mean, COVID-19 was a bit slow, but I wonder if there was a way to compare that timeline. I think the needs of underdeveloped countries are overlooked when we have our own issues going on. So according to McKnight's long-term care news, uh, the pricing of protective gear prior to COVID in the United States um, was pretty low, but it was marked up after COVID hit. And this might not affect well-developed countries like the U.S., but places like Uganda One of the places where Ebola hit hard and this marking up of protective gear might hurt these countries a lot more than we think. To give you some 
background on currency in Uganda. One U.S. dollar is 3,674.08 Ugandan shillings. And this might sound like a lot, but everything in Uganda is uh, priced accordingly. And what I mean by that is the monthly income for someone living in rural Uganda is just under $83, 83 U.S. dollars. And so this would mean that the annual income for someone in Uganda is under $1,000. It comes out to about $984, And if everything in Uganda is priced accordingly, then this isn't a big deal. But if face masks and protective gear such as gloves or soap and gowns are priced up, then these become luxury items that the poor areas can't afford. And if these areas are afflicted with a virus like Ebola or something else, um, they won't be able to effectively fight it. And so this can go back to the quote that we started this chapter off with from William Gibson. The future, like, uh, the future consists of protective gear and preventative methods and protective methods. And that's not evenly distributed to people. Well, even if they are physically able to get it, they might not be able to afford it. Or if a vaccine comes out, they, the poorer regions such as Uganda might not be able to afford the vaccine, which disproportionately results in casualties. So while Ebola had been popping up, here and there. Um, in March 2014, it showed up again, but instead of being in the usual area of equatorial Africa, now it showed up in southeastern Guinea on the west central coast. And patient zero is believed to have been a toddler who caught the virus from contact with bats in a hollow tree near his tiny village, and two days later he died of the disease. And from there, things only got worse with different um, burial practices that involved very direct contact with the infected bodies. So this just amplified transmission even further. But now you think about why this specific popping up of Ebola was different from the rest. And Dr. Osterholm offers the idea that it's not that the fact that the Ebola virus changed. It's the fact that Africa changed. So first of all, it came in this different location in Guinea. So in this location there tend to be more residents who travel much farther and therefore are having a lot more interpersonal connections and contacts with people and just the fact that the world keeps getting more worldly in the sense that more people are coming together uh, more than ever before right and then with this increase of human to human transmission now like we talked about previously when this is happening this means that the virus is passing through more people and has, is having more opportunity to mutate its own DNA or RNA or whatever Ebola consists of. Um, and so this can be considered hyper-evolutionary. And it can lead to problems when different mutations pop up that make things worse. Right. And normally viruses do mutate, um, but hyper-evolutionary mutations or hyper-evolution in viruses is dangerous because we can't keep up with it and we talked about it last episode 
where the microbes are going to be one step ahead of us and we're always going to be trying to catch up. And so this could be really, really deadly for humans. There's also the effect of deforestation in Guinea um, because a lot of trees were cut down to make infrastructure. A lot of the animals that maybe have the Ebola virus that live in deeper parts of the forest are able to come out more and possibly infect uh, human populations. In terms of the differential diagnosis of Ebola, what would happen is there was an extreme inflammatory response which caused septic shock. The public seems to have the impression of this disease causing blood dripping from eyeballs and internal organs turning to mush. And um, Dr. Osterholm says that this is more, I guess, vivid than it might actually be, but also somewhat accurate because it can be as bad. Um, But mostly it just starts off with fever, chills, headache, joint and muscle pain and fatigue about five to 10 days after exposure. And then eventually there will be nausea and vomiting, bloody diarrhea, rash, gut pain, bruising and bleeding. And then in the end stages is when the blood can ooze from the eyes, the mouth, the rectus. And then also there tends to be internal bleeding, which can collect in the spaces between organs because of the decreased clotting that's happening. Um, An interesting story I have is that my aunt actually lived or lives in Liberia in Africa. So during the Ebola epidemic, my family would call her multiple times a day just to ensure that she was doing okay. And she kept telling us how the media was blowing it out of proportion. But she also lived in Liberia where it wasn't as big of a problem. I think it affected the West more. Oh, so your aunt was saying how like... um... Like, the, if someone catches it, it's not as bad as all that happening. Yeah, like, um, the media is just focusing on the worst of the worst and not really, like, the people who are getting fevers. Because um, during the whole thing, she actually got a fever, and we were like, oh, no. And her workplace was actually, like, providing transport to the airport because it was at the time it was quarantine and no one was allowed out. So because they don't have a car... Um, they were providing transport to the airport, but then the airports got shut down and it was a whole big mess. Wow, that's interesting that she said that. I feel like that tends to be a theme that Dr. Osterholm brings up sometimes where he talks about how, uh, well, specifically he talks about how people like to focus on these crazy diseases that are either epidemics or, yeah, most likely epidemics that people tend to focus on when then there are endemics like hiv like that chapter we did on that where um no one seems to really be focusing on it and i think that's just because of the fact that it's an endemic and lasting forever but this is interesting that um she was able to i guess recognize or or see past the media if you know this all was maybe just uh blown out of proportion like she said Yeah, I think when you're living through it, it's easier to see past the media because it's not not glamorized, but, you know, not exaggerated. Um, we know that the media just wants that click, so they'll take one thing and blow it out of proportion. 
So in total, this epidemic resulted in 28,600 cases and 11,325 deaths and left more than 30,000 West African children orphaned, which is so sad to think about. Specifically, how Ebola spread, uh, it wasn't respiratory, which we know that um, tends to be like very serious, but it was actually, I mean, it was somewhat spread like that, but mostly it was spread simply by just touching an infected person or their body fluids. So like comparing this to HIV, where there needs to be the body fluid, like specifically like transferred somehow through either sexual relations or uh, blood transfusions or something like that. This was just by touching the infected person or their body fluids. And then the respiratory aspect of it is just by breathing in the aerosolized body fluids, which is definitely difficult, which is why it's not super respiratory-like. The burial practices just made things a lot worse. And then also caring for patients without probably having the proper protective equipment. But then... The silver lining, I guess, in all of this is just the fact that uh, Ebola victims were not contagious until they actually began showing symptoms. So if you're going to look at anything being good in this situation, it's that and how that probably helped with minimizing transmission. I think it's really interesting that someone's not contagious until they are showing symptoms. Um, That's not the case for COVID because the whole reason COVID is so contagious is because People don't even know they have it and they are active spreaders. Why do you think it is that they're not contagious until they have symptoms for Ebola? I mean, yeah, that is pretty interesting. But I guess it just depends on each virus's genetic makeup. And I mean, here's one way to think about it. I was reading something today. When you think about this from an evolutionary perspective and thinking about Dr. Mawalam, We talked about how viruses like to maximize their transmission because that means that they can get into different hosts, replicate, and this is how they survive. So maybe this virus just isn't super um, in tune to like maximizing its evolutionary capacities because ideally it would want to do what COVID does and be infectious before anyone knows it because that gives it extra time to spread. So maybe this virus just doesn't have the hasn't mutated yet, maybe. And one day, maybe it is a possibility for it to become deadly or infectious to that level. But maybe it's just not there yet. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking more along the lines of there isn't enough Ebola virus in the human system or the of the infected person um, to make them show symptoms to the point where they're infectious. No, yeah, I think that makes sense, actually. I mean, that definitely could be a possible explanation for it. And maybe, maybe you know, the scientists who do more research on it probably know the answer to it. But that definitely, obviously, is a game changer in terms of making a virus as, you know, as dangerous as it can be for the population. So the Ebola virus has appeared in the U.S., prior to the 2014 to 2015 outbreak. And this was in 1989 in Reston, Virginia. What happened was there were a group of monkeys who died from the disease and the ones that didn't die were euthanized. And they had the Reston strain, which is different from the one in West Africa that caused the West African outbreak. Uh, This strain isn't infectious to humans, but it can spread amongst the animals. So even though the monkeys were all in separate cages and were not in contact with each other, they all had to be euthanized or 
they died from the virus itself. And what's scary about this virus is that it can be transmitted via the respiratory route. Does this mean that once this virus mutates, or if this virus mutates, that it can possibly be infectious to humans? But some people, like Dr. Vincent Racaniello, says that it's not possible for this human virus to mutate, and we shouldn't need to worry about the rest of virus mutating into something that affects humans. Dr. Osterholm shoots this down, and he says that this is not the case, because if you look at the Zika virus, its main mode of transmission was with mosquitoes, but it can be sexually transmitted because it mutated. So what Dr. Osterholm is getting at is that the Ebola virus could become airborne. And if that's the case, we are very extremely underprepared to handle that. Yeah, and he he talks about how most of the science community just tends to either intentionally or maybe they're just not aware or, or maybe genuinely they don't think it's that big of a threat. They're shutting their mind to the idea of this, which Dr. Osterholm says is pretty dangerous because, you know, just because you're scared of something, you can't just pretend it doesn't exist because then, like Elsa said, we're underprepared and that's not going to change if we're just too scared to do anything about it. Last episode, we talked about how ignorance is bliss in some scenarios, but here I think as much research as possible is what is going to save us. Ebola was also present in Nigeria, but it didn't blow out of proportion the way it did in Uganda. And you might be wondering, why is this the case? Because the Ebola virus itself didn't mutate, and the people are still at risk for the virus, so why isn't it just infecting them? And this is because of the brave Dr. Ameo Adedevo. When patient zero, Patrick Sawyer, who is a Liberian-American lawyer uh, from Minnesota, arrived in Nigeria on July 20th, 2014, he was already sick, and so he collapsed in the international airport in Lagos. And from there, he was taken directly to the hospital, and it took three days to come up with some sort of diagnosis. What Dr. Ameo Adedevo did is that against the patient's will, She put the patient in quarantine, and this isolated him from the other patients, and this minimized the risk of infection to other patients. Dr. Adedovo later started feeling the symptoms around July 28th, and she died on August 19th. But because of her commitment and compassion, she was able to save the lives of countless people. And why would it have been so bad if patient zero had not collapsed in the airport and maybe had not been put in quarantine right away or had been released from the hospital after a primary checkup. The reason is that he could have gone into the neighborhoods of Lagos, which have about 15 million residents in slum conditions. And here there's no reliable clean drinking water, electricity, or sewage disposal. So Dr. Osterholm writes that if Ebola had caught on there and had spread, then it would have been extremely hard to manage and the casualties probably would have been extremely high. And this just shows how third world countries would have much harder times uh, dealing with an epidemic. And it seems that they're always the ones who ultimately end up facing the epidemics, right? I feel like it's always Africa who has the worst things.
Yeah, probably. And yeah, for the reasons you said, because they just it's harder for them to deal with it when they don't have the proper money and equipment to take care of it. Also, what I thought was interesting about this situation, if we're talking about like what ifs, it's crazy how like, you know, he was a Liberian American lawyer who lived in Minnesota and he happened to be traveling from Liberia to Nigeria. Right. So now what if things were different and he was going back to his home in Minnesota? So now he showed up in the U.S. So now we would have had our problem here. And, you know, when it's a U.S. problem, like we talked about in the beginning, this would have blown up. Um, to a much higher proportion. Now, let's say if we if this was happening in the U.S., in the U.S., you can't just do something against the patient's will like that. Like that may and like for a good reason. I mean, like uh, even if it was like against the patient's will, it was probably the better thing to do, even though that sounds a little weird. Um, so that's why it like flew for her to do this in Nigeria. But there's no one doing that in the u.s so he would have just gone about spreading ebola to everyone so it just would have gotten a lot worse which is just interesting because like things easily could have been different like that yeah it's crazy how there's so many scenarios that could have played out and unfortunately the doctor died but she saved so many lives from her quick thinking and something to take note from and it's funny that you bring that up ria because Next, Dr. Osterholm says how the U.S. would be extremely underprepared and that each city in the U.S. only has about three isolation beds, except for New York, which has eight isolation beds. And so if this patient zero had actually gone home to Minnesota, like you said, and had infected multiple people, the U.S. wouldn't have had enough beds for isolation for all these people. And by the time they even found out that they were infected, maybe it would have been too far spread to the point where we couldn't control it. And I wonder, has this changed with the recent pandemic? So, yeah, I looked up a study right now that kind of supports, I guess, what Dr. Osterholm was saying, because um, it's from 2015 and it's saying how whatever study was done found a total national capacity of 121 beds only. So that, I mean, I'm sure the math would work out. The quick search that I did, it seems like what most hospitals ended up doing was turning the regular beds that they had into isolation beds. So, I mean, this one quick study I looked at talked about how a total of 48 hospitals, including two new hospitals built specifically for patients with COVID-19 and more than 26,000 inpatient beds were designated for the isolation and treatment of patients with confirmed severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2. Quarantine centers with more than 13,000 total beds were also established to isolate confirmed patients with milder diseases. They didn't seem to have places where one patient could be isolated from the rest. I think because at that point there were just so many people with the virus, they just started isolating them all together but separate i think well it's good that we started making more isolation beds uh for something like covid19 as opposed to an ebola outbreak because it seems more mild the coronavirus than ebola i know that in the severe cases it's deadly but if anything this pandemic has made us a little bit more aware of how underprepared we are and hopefully that 
help us in the future after this is all done. I hope like the efforts to get prepared and stay prepared don't stop just because we are out of danger. Yeah, because in this case, the vaccine saved us, which we're fortunate enough to say that you know, I, I mean, it came to the rescue, but part of it, the, part of the reason why companies were so willing to make the vaccine is because they realized that this wasn't going away with our own practices because it had already gotten too out of hand with transmission. But now you think about something with Ebola, um, something that had been going back and forth into the population throughout the span of like X amount of years. You know, we mentioned it earlier in the podcast. So when you have something like this that frequently just fixes itself, it's hard for companies to want to make a vaccine because they think that it's just going to, again, go away and then they're just going to lose money, which, again, we talked about in a previous episode. So this actually ended up happening with Ebola, where um, they they did end up making the vaccine for this 2014 epidemic. But I guess like I don't know if this is exactly right, but essentially what I got from reading was that they were just like, what am I going to do now? Because like it went away on its own and we just started this process of making vaccines and what are we going to do especially with the population of africa that like we said probably wouldn't have enough money to even buy it dr Osterholm then says how there's no ongoing commitment from the global public health community um to fund this vaccine because as soon as the zika virus came around the half of the funding or some amount of funding from ebola virus was taken and put into Zika. And so he was saying these vaccines for both of them were left half finished and neither disease is getting the correct amount of attention. And it just because something disappears doesn't mean it doesn't reemerge. Dr. Osterholm ends this chapter by saying that in order to be proactive and ensure that we will be able to handle another epidemic of Ebola, or specifically Ebola in this case, we should have enough vaccine on standby so that we can ring vaccinate, which we talked about in one of the earlier episodes, expend money for something that hasn't even happened yet. It's a shame that that's like how it has to be because of the economics of it. Because really, I wish there was just some body like a governmental body that can just step in or like even like a universal body that can you know that is very much specifically for public health and just trying to ensure that yeah it might not be a threat now but we should be proactive and we should get ready and maybe hopefully in the future we can make these changes accordingly so now this next chapter chapter 13 titled SARS and Mares harbingers of things to come so this chapter was kind of what i was looking forward to just because you know sars won so we can make a lot of comparisons i mean we've already been making a lot of comparisons to today but i think this would probably be the most direct so it starts off talking about the guangdong province in china which seems to be the location for where the world's yearly influenza strain comes from most of the time like i already was intrigued by this point just because to think there's a specifically one region in the world where you can count on most, or not maybe most, but like a lot of the virus, like influenza strains coming up from, it's just interesting how we've pinpointed it to one certain area. And also a little strange how we know that there's an area like this, 
but I don't know if they're really doing anything to prevent more strains from coming out of there. Yeah, I wonder if it's, like, restricted. You know how pigs, poultry, and aquatic birds are the natural natural reservoirs for the virus? Mm-hmm. And they're just out and about everywhere, so would why aren't we taking more caution with it? Yeah, that's also kind of the same thing. I feel like there should be someone stepping in and being like, okay, maybe you want to kind of restrict them to be far from each other or to protect yourself from being in close contact with them by wearing proper equipment. Well, I mean, it seems like this place is a nice tourist destination, so they're not really showing anything about viruses or why it comes from here. So maybe it's just not, like insider knowledge that Dr. Osterholm has, and it's maybe not that big of a deal. Maybe it has something to do with the population compared to the surrounding provinces. And we don't really know much about how the lifestyle is in the Guangdong province. So maybe it has something to do with that. So at first they thought it was influenza coming from this area because it was the right around the right time and everything like that. But after doing some testing, um, they didn't find an influenza strain in the blood. So they realized that it must have been something else, something that was more serious that we should be afraid of now. One specific man who caught this virus was Dr. Carlo Urbani, who seemed to have been at the forefront of figuring out what this virus was, uh, how deadly it was, what was going on. And he actually ended up contracting the virus. And, you know, he was taking his conference calls initially from the hospital bed, just, you know, trying to work on this while he was literally dying. Um, and then eventually on March 23rd, 29th, he gave out and he passed away. But something that I just wanted to highlight is I wanted to kind of give a shout out to him because he decided that, you know, right, right before he passed away, he asked a priest to do the last rites and he directed that samples of his lung tissue be saved for scientific analysis. So, you know, it's just in general, members like that of society who contribute so much to science and the betterment of others. I don't know. I think they just deserve to have a shout out right here. I agree with you. I think it's really commendable that someone can fight their entire life to better the lives of other people. And then even when they're dying, still, you know, continue that fight until they themselves die. So, And then, and then donate their lung tissue for research purposes. And then on a side note, I mean... He was only 47 years old, so it's crazy to think that he passed away relatively young. And more than that, I think what intrigued me about this is the fact that he died so young, and this is SARS, like the initial one. So I guess that means that that's a little different from SARS-CoV-2 in that sense, because we see patients dying a lot older now. So, I mean, would it be safe to say that this is a... A prominent distinction point maybe i think we need to look into more research to make that generalization but it's definitely unique that someone so young died from the first sars virus and now it's more targeted toward the older people and then another interesting point i found in this was that uh, china actually suppressed reporting this outbreak and eventually you know they were criticized by this by the who and i just think that's crazy how they can just 
I mean, they didn't get away with it, but how they can think to, I know initially you don't want to look like the bad guy. And this probably goes to furthering our point about how we shouldn't blame countries because then things like this happen where they just like in trying to avoid blame, they make a mistake that costs a lot of lives. Right. I think you're definitely correct that China probably hit it because they don't want to take blame. Or maybe they were trying to deal with it on their own before it became a bigger issue. But something as big as this, um, I think the world needs to know what they are potentially in for so they can prepare ahead of time. At the end of it all, they realized that those who had contracted SARS like this ended up having chronic fatigue syndrome, which we discussed when, uh, in a previous chapter. And which we talked about how this actually relates to COVID-19. So, I mean, obviously because this is SARS-1, so that makes sense. We just thought I would bring that up. This seemed to have come from mast palm civets and ferret badgers. They had most likely caught the virus from bats. Again, similar to right now. Another similarity is the fact that nurses who were working in hospitals at this time Some of them chose to resign rather than care for the patients because this was scary. But eventually they kind of got it under control because of the fact that, one, they decided to, you know, try and kill any of these infected civets and ferret badgers. And two, they did a great job with implementing uh, infection control and isolating patients. So they had the PPE, they did the whole nine. And so my question with this is, well, I mean, one, I just found it crazy how how big SARS was, how it didn't get to the U.S. That was just crazy to think about. And two, um, or maybe because the spread was weak and they did this good care from the start. But then my second question was, if they were able to implement this good, you know, infection control from the start, like in SARS-1, why couldn't they have done it now with, you know, SARS-CoV-2? That's a good question. Um... Maybe it has something to do with the way it mutated. Maybe it's harder to control and maybe the same preventative methods don't work. And also you said SARS-1, it wasn't as infectious or it didn't transmit as easily. So I feel like with SARS-2, COVID-2 that we're experiencing right now, it's highly infectious. And I've been hearing on the news that the new mutation in the U.S. is... 70% more infectious, is that right? Yeah, I heard the same thing. So maybe it has something to do with that. Yeah, I was thinking probably something along the same lines, like it just has to do with the RNA coding for it to be more infectious. And then what I really found interesting about this chapter was the discussion on super spreaders. So they mentioned this doctor, Dr. Liu, who came from Guangdong province. And basically, he went to a wedding in Hong Kong, and that's how he ended up spreading it to a lot of people. And uh, actually, about 80% of Hong Kong cases were traced back to this doctor. You know, why is it that this one individual was able to spread the virus to so many people, while comparatively, you look at some other people who also had SARS, but they didn't spread it to as many people. So, like, what they're trying to say with this is not just the fact that, like, it was just something left to circumstance i think specifically the virus does this where for one reason or another they aren't sure these super spreaders emerge where they're able to spread it more than your regular person now in terms of connecting this back to this well first of all this seems to be characteristic of coronaviruses so when you look at something like today 
I was wondering if we're also having the same situation today where there are super spreaders and I mean, maybe scientists know it, maybe we don't know it. I just haven't done enough research into it. But the research that I did do, I read an article from Harvard Health, I think, where they talked about um, how children seem to be super spreaders. So the article I read there was talking about how, you know, we know how children aren't really affected by this virus we're living in right now. Um, And they tend to be either asymptomatic or I think it's like 90 percent or something like that are either asymptomatic or or have mild cases. However, they actually have a higher viral load when you compare them to regular people. So you would think that if they have more of the virus in their system, that they would be more um, like affected, more sick. But uh, what scientists are thinking is that, you know, because that's clearly not the case. But what they did maybe think make of this was the fact that um, they might be more infectious this way. And I think also this is what you talked about when I asked you that question in the last chapter, I think. So, yeah, I think um, I mean, that's just something I picked up on. I think that's really interesting, uh, and I think that makes sense too. Because if uh, children have a higher viral load, then they're obviously going to have more of the virus and be more infectious. So, how do we know who is a super spreader? The researchers figure this out with the reproductive rate, which is known as R naught. R naught is the likelihood that someone will transmit an infection to another person, and that's taken directly from the text. And so this rate is usually the same for the same type of people. So basically this rate is the same for non-super spreaders. But when it gets to super spreaders, the R naught value goes up. So they can transmit more people. They can transmit the same infection to a higher number of people. So for example, the typical R naught for measles is 18 to 20. So this means that one person would be able to spread it to 18 to 20 people, which is pretty high. And with super spreaders, this would be even more. And super spreaders are not obvious. They're not, they don't have something that distinguishes them from other people. They could be literally anybody and we don't know why they are super spreaders. And then the final point that I thought was interesting about SARS was um, Dr. Osterholm concluding with the quote, SARS is alive and well and living in China and ready for the next outbreak. So we clearly see that today because, um, you know, it happened. But I mean, something really creepy was the fact that he said, like, bats sampled in China and Taiwan were found to be carrying a coronavirus that was genetically almost identical to the SARS virus and that any day could be transmitted to another animal species that has substantial human contact. So I'm pretty sure that means that even back then they knew that there was something there. And that makes me wonder why they didn't take more action. Like, is it because it wasn't an active threat that we didn't try to prepare for it? Exactly. Or was there just like, I feel like there's definitely something they could have done. Like like they, they did with the civets, they just killed them all. So, I mean, um, could have could, was it too out of hand for them to just kill the bats like that? Maybe the bats weren't in an isolated region. Maybe they just collected it from one bat. So it wouldn't be 
possible to kill off all the bats. Also, maybe that would mess up the ecosystem or something if there was a high number of bats infected. I don't know. I feel like this is probably the most shocking thing to read because it was like very clearly there and very clearly we knew about it. And yet still, I don't know, just crazy. Right. And I think in after SARS-CoV-2 is finished, we'll look back on this and, you know, Right now, we're looking back on the other diseases that came and went and, like, where it started and how it ended. And so I think this will be one of the things that they'll look into in the future, like all the signs leading up to it and how we handled it. Yeah, definitely something to be studied. In the summer of 2012, there's a man from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia who developed something that was pretty similar to SARS. And so this included severe pneumonia, uh, not caused by the usual bacteria and viruses. It wasn't exactly like SARS, but it was very similar um, because it was a coronavirus. And multiple other cases popped up in Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And later it was identified as the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS for short. And it said that the original species or the original reservoir for the disease was in bats, but but then it transmitted to camels. And this might be the reason that it became such a big problem in the next coming years, because camels are prized possessions and of high value in the Middle East. And so it's not something that we can just kill off like we did to civets and the badgers. So once the bats successfully transmitted the virus to the camels, the camels spread amongst themselves and the bats were no longer needed to propagate the virus, like Dr. Osterholm says. So yeah, the camels basically have this virus embedded in them, um, but there are some populations, such as the population of Kenya, where they sampled 1,122 people and only two of them had antibodies. So essentially, if anything were to break like the virus was to break out in this population, um, it would be a big problem. And it would kind of be similar to what happens when the Europeans traveled to the New World and then infected all of the Native Americans there who were didn't have any immunity built up. So that's just what I thought of it to be like. So then they talk about how the most effective thing that they can do right now is just to create a vaccine but not necessarily for the people, but really for the camels, because because they're the source of it. Dr. Osterholm thinks it would be beneficial to and it, he makes sense because logically just to get rid of the source so that it can't happen to people. So I think this is a good option. But, but also, if something were to happen to the humans, then we should start creating vaccines for humans and make that our priority. I agree. Um, If it ends up spreading to humans, then we definitely do need a vaccine. And better to be proactive with that than regret it after the fact, like it happens so often. And there needs to be continued research and funding for vaccine development. It can't just be something that happens when we're in the middle of a pandemic or an epidemic. Uh, We need to be prepared for it before the fact and even if something like SARS that was extinguished by the end of summer 2003, even with something like that, I think 
the SARS vaccine should still be developed and there should still be research for it because it can always come back around. And we're now experiencing SARS-CoV-2. And I wonder, had we had made a vaccine earlier, could that have helped us out right now with COVID-19? Yeah, and again, it makes sense, like, economically, why companies um, are hesitant to start creating vaccines when they know that, um, like, most, most of the time that, like, the need for the vaccine won't really exist like when they're like deep into the project like it'll might just go away on its own but you know on the off chance that it doesn't or not even on the off chance that it doesn't but in general this problem is always just going to stick around so i mean it it should be created for ethical reasons but i just wish again that there was somebody that would enforce this yeah i agree i Hope that we can learn from everything that we did wrong this time for future instances so that we don't regret our inaction, like Dr. Osterholm says at the end of this chapter. All right, guys, thank you for sticking around for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. Bye.